European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 36, Issue 37, Focus Issue on Devices, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Device Therapy in Cardiac Disease, a Success Story. Ever since the development of the external defibrillator by Paul Zoll in the United States and the implantation of the first pacemaker by Orca Senning in Europe in the 50s, cardiac devices have become a most important part of the therapeutic armamentarium of cardiac patients. The early pioneers were followed by people such as Michel Morofsky, who, 25 years later, invented the implantable defibrillator for the prevention of sudden cardiac death. More recently, the biventricular pacemaker was introduced for patients with heart failure. All these devices have markedly improved quality of life and survival of cardiac patients with excellent cost-effectiveness, if appropriately used according to current guidelines. With the increasing use of cardiac devices, infection appears to be a problem according to current trends. Although a severe complication, it can at times be symptomatically mild, making the diagnosis challenging. Of note, device infections are potentially lethal, and timely diagnosis and early initiation of correct treatment are of highest importance for patient outcome. In order to reduce device infections, careful patient selection, preventative measures, and appropriate choice of device types are key. The issue begins with a timely clinical review entitled Infected Cardiac Implanted Electronic Devices Prevention, Diagnosis and Treatment by Jens Cassidis Nielsen from the Aarhus University Hospital Skabi in Aarhus, Denmark. The article presents currently available data and a consensus opinion on device infection and identifies important current practice aspects for future development. Due to their clinical importance, strategies for reducing device infection should be tested in sufficiently powered and well-designed multi-center randomized controlled trials in the future. Congenital heart defects are the most common birth defects. Such patients are often also in need of cardiac devices, be it pacemakers, implantable cardioverter defibrillators, ICD, or cardiac resynchronization therapy. Major advances in open heart surgery have led to rapidly evolving cohorts of adult survivors requiring specialized care. Also, as the majority of affected women now survive to childbearing age, managing pregnancy in grown-ups with congenital heart disease has become an issue. The risk of cardiovascular complications during pregnancy and peripartum depends on the type of the underlying defect, the extent and severity of residual hemodynamic lesions, as well as comorbidities. The issue continues with a clinical review entitled Pregnancy in Women with Congenital Heart Disease by Matthias Groitmann from the University Hospital Zurich. The authors note that individualized multidisciplinary pre-pregnancy risk assessment and counseling, including assessment of risks in the offspring and estimation on long-term outcomes of the underlying heart defect, will enable informed decision-making by the patient. Depending on the estimated risks, a careful follow-up plan during pregnancy, as well as a detailed plan for delivery and postpartum care, can reduce the risks and should be made by the multidisciplinary team. Many patients with hereditary heart disease require cardiac pacing early in life and hence will repeatedly require new batteries and devices. As pacing leads are difficult to remove, 
leadless pacemakers have been developed for such patient populations. Furthermore, complications associated with conventional transvenous pacing systems are commonly related to the pacing lead and pocket. Thus, miniaturized devices might be advantageous. In the first fast-track clinical research paper entitled Early Performance of a Miniaturized Leadless Cardiac Pacemaker, the Microtranscatheter Pacing Study, by Veala Lager from Medtronic Incorporated in Blaine, Minnesota, USA, the authors described the early performance of a novel, self-contained miniaturized pacemaker. Patients having class 1 or 2 indication for VVI pacing underwent implantation of a microtranscatheter pacing system from the femoral vein and fixated in the right ventricle using four protractable nitinol tines. Pre-specified objectives were over 85% freedom from unanticipated serious adverse device events, i.e. safety, and less than 2 volts 3-month mean pacing capture threshold at 0.24 milliseconds pulse width, i.e. efficacy. 140 patients were implanted, 66% of which for atrioventricular block, and 29% for sinus node dysfunction. During follow-up of around two years, the safety endpoint was met with no unanticipated serious adverse events. 30 adverse events related to the system or procedure occurred, mostly due to transient dysrhythmias or femoral access complications. One pericardial effusion without tamponade occurred. In 60 patients followed for three months, mean pacing threshold was 0.5 volts and no threshold was above 2 volts meeting the efficacy endpoint. Average R-wave was 16 millivolts and impedance 651 ohms. The authors conclude that early assessment shows the transcatheter pacemakers can safely and effectively be applied. Long-term safety and benefit of the pacemaker will further be evaluated in the trial. An editorial by Jagmeet P. Singh from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston puts these early findings into perspective and discusses the future of such devices. In the second fast-track paper, Intraoperative Defibrillation Testing and Clinical Shock Efficacy in Patients with Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators, the Nordic ICD Randomized Clinical Trial, Dietmar Bench from the University Clinic in Rostock, Germany, tested the hypothesis that shock efficacy during follow-up is not inferior in patients implanted without defibrillation testing during first ICD implantation. 1,077 patients were randomly assigned to first-time ICD implantation with or without testing and follow-up for almost two years. Intraoperative testing was standardized across all participating centers, and all ICD shocks were programmed to 40 joules irrespective of ICD test results. The primary endpoint was the average first shock efficacy for all true ventricular tachycardia and fibrillation episodes. The secondary endpoints included procedural and other serious adverse events and mortality. The model-based first shock efficacy was found to be non-inferior in patients with an ICD implanted without ICD testing, with a difference in first shock efficacy of 3.0% in favour of the no-testing group. A total of 112 procedure-related serious adverse events occurred within 30 days in 18% of the tested and in 14% of the not-tested patients. 
The rate of arrhythmic and sudden unknown deaths was 2% after ICD testing, which was unexpectedly significantly higher than in the no testing group with 0.6%. The authors conclude that defibrillation efficacy during follow-up is not inferior in patients with an ICD implanted without device testing. Defibrillation testing during first-time ICD implantation should no longer be recommended. The paper is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Arthur J. Moss from the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. A small but important group of patients often requiring device therapy are those with channelopathies. For their diagnosis, genetic analyses are increasingly used. In the third manuscript, rare genetic variants previously associated with congenital forms of long QT syndrome have little or no effect on the QT interval. Morten Olesen and colleagues from the Riggs Hospitalet in Copenhagen, Denmark, studied if variants previously associated with congenital long QT syndrome have an effect on the QTC interval in a Danish population sample. Furthermore, the authors assessed if carriers of variants in CLQTS-associated genes are more prone to experience syncope compared with non-carriers, and if carriers have an increased mortality compared to non-carriers. All genetic variants previously associated with long QT syndrome were surveyed using the Human Gene Mutation Database. The authors screened a Danish population-based sample of 7,031 individuals with available whole exome sequencing data and genotype array data for putative long QT syndrome genetic variants. In total, 33 out of 1,358 variants previously reported to associate with long QT syndrome were identified. Of these, 10 variants were found in more than 8 individuals. The ECG showed normal QTC intervals in carriers compared to non-carriers. Syncope analysis among variant carriers and non-variant carriers showed that 1.8% and 1.6% of the individuals respectively had experienced syncope during follow-up. There was no significant difference in overall mortality rates between carriers 3.2% and non-carriers 4.7%. QTC data and register data indicate that 26 long QT syndrome associated variants neither had any effect on the QTC intervals nor on syncope propensity or overall mortality. Based on the frequency of individual gene variants, the authors suggest that the 10 variants frequently identified, assumed to relate to long QT syndrome, are less likely to associate with a dominant monogenic form of the disease. Heart failure often occurs as a late stage of an initial ventricular hypertrophy due to pressure overload. A mismatch between adequate angiogenesis and overgrowth of myocytes may be a critical mechanism controlling the transition from adaptive hypertrophy to heart failure. CNPY2 was recently identified as a secreted HIF1-alpha-regulated angiogenic growth factor. In the fourth basic science paper, Canopy2 attenuates the transition from compensatory hypertrophy to dilated heart failure in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Ren K. Lee and colleagues from the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada, 
investigate the role of angiogenic factors in the development of myocardial hypertrophy and the development of heart failure induced by transverse aortic constriction in cardiac-specific transgenic mice that overexpress human CNPY2 in the myocardium. Wild-type mice develop significant ventricular hypertrophy at 4 weeks and severe dilation and heart failure at 12 weeks after aortic constriction. However, transgenic mice exhibited less severe ventricular dilation and markedly reduced cardiac apoptosis and fibrosis following aortic constriction. Excess CNPY2 in transgenic mice prevented vascular loss up to 12 weeks after aortic constriction, resulting in a better local myocardial environment, facilitating myocyte survival and preventing excessive matrix remodeling. Furthermore, transgenic mice expressed less tumor suppressor P53 after aortic constriction, indicating intrinsic activation of the P53-mediated repression of HIF1-alpha and CNPY2. The authors found a correlation between the downregulation of endogenous mouse CNPY2 and P53-mediated HIF1-alpha inhibition during late-stage hypertrophic development. Thus, Overexpression of CNPY2 attenuated the transition from compensatory hypertrophic response to maladaptive ventricular dilation and heart failure, a finding that may stimulate further research and provides a suggestion for a novel therapeutic target to prevent heart failure under conditions of pressure overload. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.